Hi and welcome to this week's Three Legs, Four Wheels F1 podcast. It's Paul here with... Sean. Chris. Lee. And our special guest this week, Craig Scarborough. Welcome along, Craig. Uh, thank you for welcoming me back. Excellent. Good to see you all guys. Wouldn't be the start of the season without you because we need to know basically what the hell we're going to be watching racing this year. I'm just taking it that we are going to be watching some racing coronavirus discussion out the window. Yes. For now. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. It, <laughs> I think a lot of the cars are all looking very similar this year, which I think is kind of what we expected. Um, a couple of them looking rather more slimmer than some other cars than perhaps we were predicting. Um, but that's the racing point story at some stage. But yeah, already we can see there's sort of three or four really quite interesting technical things going on. Plus the sort of the Ferrari um, fuel saga uh, rolling on again into the new year. So yeah, there, there's lots to sort of to uh, get quite excited about on the on the cars themselves, uh, which probably is just as well because it might just be talking about cars sitting still. That's all we get to talk about this year. <laughs> Well, fingers fingers crossed we actually will get a race in Australia, although Lee had a bold prediction about this. My, my bold oh. prediction is that Australia will be called off within 24 hours. Okay. All right. Well, I think with people on these long-haul flights at the moment um, suffering uh, coughing, as Lewis Hamilton uh, described it on his tweet, um, uh, yeah, they're probably going to really regret that, aren't they? I'm, I'm not saying people are going to be happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, we'll we'll start with what the cars look like this year, and I mean, I don't know, don't know which way to go first. Uh, well, the big D- story of the winter, DAS, yeah. the Ferrari, mm-hmm. or the pink Mercedes. DAS has got to be yes. the first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah this has been. It was quite an interesting one, wasn't it? It was um, something completely left field, kind of attacked us on the first day of testing. Um, uh, I, I can actually I, I remember it as if it was yesterday uh, when it was actually only six testing days ago but uh, yeah someone said oh what's Hamilton doing with his wheel and it's like I don't know what do you Turning mean it. <laughs> it's like oh my god this is amazing um, and immediately jumped in my car and did a video pulling my steering wheel backwards and forwards uh, <laughs> so yeah this this whole steering thing with, with um, Mercedes has kind of opened another area which people haven't spoken about for ages which is sort of toe in toe out on the front wheels or tracking as you call it on your, your road car mm. um, and Mercedes have found this uh, steering rack system where you on the straights you pull the steering wheel back as though you were trying to get an aircraft to take off um, and in doing that, it adjusts something inside the steering rack, and the, the wheels go from pointing outwards slightly, which is called toe out, to pointing, I suspect, probably more and almost in a parallel position. Um, and of course, we've all been scratching our heads to understand exactly why this is. And um, when you even hear people like Adrian Newey going, Well, I just don't understand it. it it's not an aero thing. Why would they be doing this? Um, it kind of makes you realize that this is something quite different, and the regulations aren't geared up for people playing about with adjustable toe around the circuit so um yeah so it's turned into um quite a nice little kind of area for us to kind of look look into so to explain initially all cars no car would normally have its steering uh, with the both front wheels pointed in exactly the same direction i always have a little degree of toe out or toe in on road cars it's for a little bit of stability under braking in a race car you have a bit of toe out and that just helps with the turning into corners to, to sort of manage the balance of the car as you get that initial turn in. Um, but the problem that creates is if your wheels are pointing out slightly, and you could imagine if you really kind of exaggerated that, along the straights, it means your tyres are both trying to steer the car in different directions, which means the tyres are actually scrubbing along the circuit. 
and that means that they're slowing the car down because of the friction and it also means that they're slightly less aerodynamic because they're odd shape because they're pointing outwards um and what mercedes have chosen to do with the system is to make the, the wheels point in line parallel to each other along the straights and i think the the consensus of opinion now isn't it's not because of um the the the, the drag of the tire on the circuit it's not because of the aerodynamic drag or any other influence like that it's actually to do with tire cooling so at some circuits, your front tires will be running way too hot. So if you could cool them on the straights, that means you could get more life out of a set of tires and you can keep them in their temperature window, which means you get better lap times as well. So I think this whole DAS thing is really all about um, race tire management. They could potentially use it in qualifying, but I think the impact would be much less. Um, so in the race, if you know uh, Bono comes onto the radio to Lewis and say, your front tires are getting hot, Let's use DAS for a few laps. So on the straights, he'll just pull the steering wheel back and it will just bring the front tyre temperatures down into a manageable level. So this is kind of just a, a really weird workaround for the bizarre tyres that F1 chooses to um, mandate Pirelli to make every year with these kind of high temperature, high degradation, very temp uh, temperature sensitive tyres. Um, so DAS really is a kind of a, a developmental dead end that would never probably be seen anywhere else other than current F1 with the regulations and with the tyres that we've got. Um, so it's a bit of an advantage for Mercedes, who you know have worked very hard to manage their tyre temperatures over the past few years. It's always been something they struggle with. Um, so we now have to sort of scratch our heads and go, well, is it legal? As far as I can see, I can't think of a real argument that would make DAS illegal, because it's steering and not suspension, so it's um, subject to slightly different regulations. And while when you pull DAS into operation and it affects the wheel so it's adjusting the suspension by a secondary effect and it's adjusting the aero by a secondary effect but then so does steering in any corner anyway so you know it's not an argument you can say that it's having a effect on aero or suspension so really the only arguments would be if there's some argument about setup between qualifying and the race if you don't use DAS in quali and you use it in the race then you're doing something in park fermé that effectively um is a bit iffy but i really think that's kind of stretching it a bit i think most teams will just think we're not going to waste our money arguing about this or even developing our own one i think ferrari and red bull are probably keeping a little eye on their what their tire temperatures look like in barcelona testing and would then then decide do we want to develop this? Is it going to be something that we can get some benefit from or should we just kind of let it run and ignore it? And I think the majority of things actually won't try and replicate DAS and it's banned for 2021 already. Um, so it's just going to be one of those oddball things that one team's run in a single year and in a few years' time we'll all kind of forget about it. I suppose with 2021 being such a big change as well, the idea of developing a system like that like over the next six months has just taken time away from next year too. Exactly, and you know, the, if you think that the the people looking after suspension and steering have got to cope with the 18-inch um, wheels and the skinny tyres, um, they've got enough to be working on and trying to play sort of you know silly games with um, toe control on the straights. Um, so, I, I, even though, as I say, the FI have known about this for well over a year and they've already written in regulations to ban it. Although, I wonder if some of the teams may in the future see if they can kind of circumvent them rules to reintroduce something like this if the tyres do need that level of management in a race but again um, I, I think most people have got sort of you know bigger fish to fry and they'll just leave um, DAS on the shelf 
Yeah, I just, I just wonder because I think uh, from what I read, the rules for next year, um, it's all about controlling it via the steering wheel, and the rules just state that the steering wheel can only move on a horizontal mm. axis. So yep. if other teams do bring in a system, then they'd have to use uh, uh, a lever control on the steering wheel or uh, yeah, some, I mean, something the... extra, which wouldn't be illegal under what I understand. Yeah, I mean, there's there there are you know there's there, there, it's very hard to think of a way around that change in regulation because the beauty of the system is in the fact that you're moving the steering wheel, um, and of course you're allowed to move the steering wheel, maybe not in that axis, but no one's ever thought about that in the past before. Um, so yeah, it does really quite tightly pin down um, what teams are doing with um, you know the, the what they call the toe curve, so how the tyres change. The front tyres change their angle relative to each other on straights and around corners. Now, there are ways you can already do that. Uh, we're seeing a lot of teams playing around with Ackerman now, which is the suspension geometry um, of how the steering relates to the, the steering pivot access on the, on the wheels. And you could arguably create a car that already had parallel steering for the straights and then tow out for the corners. And that's quite possible. And I think Red Bull are one of the teams that are probably going that path. But the only benefit that they... Uh, don't have over the Mercedes DAS system is that that will be on all the time. So in a race, if you suddenly find your tyres are getting hot or cold, you can't change it. You'll always have that fixed uh, toe control. So the beauty of DAS is that you know the drivers can choose to use it or not, depending on what the tyres are doing in a race. So um, you know, again, I, I think we'll probably find more interesting conversations talking about Ackerman, which is a massively complicated and very hard to explain, particularly without drawings, which makes this podcast quite difficult. <laughs> uh, Paint a picture with your my, words. I'm actually waving my hands frantically around here, pointing at what wheels look like when they move. But, uh, you can't see any of that, unfortunately, on this stream tonight. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, how they play about with suspension geometry is another one of those areas which people are starting to get back involved with we saw a little bit of it last year with a couple of teams which funny enough included Mercedes uh, and probably funny enough Racing Point as well um, and Williams and a couple of things played with it but I think this year although we haven't seen the cars obviously stripped of all their bodywork yet but certainly what Red Bull have done with this double bulkhead is largely based around the steering and tow control for the uh, the front wheels and things like Ackerman and what have you How effective do you expect DAS to actually be or is it just a completely unknown quantity when it comes to in terms of of lap time if someone if as you say Bono gets on the radio to Lewis and says right let's use DAS do you think it'll be uh, an actual it's one of those things it's very hard to pinpoint down to a bit of time because it does it wouldn't give if you were already doing a lap time using DAS wouldn't in, with everything else being equal, actually make you go quicker. I mean, it may be a very fri- a tiny fraction quicker, but not to the point where the amount of development they've put into it will be worth it. Where it will gain its time will be in race tyre strategy. So if they can keep their tyres uh, within the working temperature uh, rather than getting them too hot, then that means the, the, the drivers can go quicker because the tyres are working better. Um but again, no quicker than they would be before, but quicker than they would be if they were overheating, if you see what I mean. Quicker for longer. Uh, likewise. And likewise, can range much better by using DAS strategically through the race when the tyres get hot or cold. 
uh, that means they potentially could run stints to be a little bit longer than their rivals could if they were having similar problems. So the game would be maybe an extra lap on a stint or maximizing your lap time through a stint because you've always got the tyres in the right temperature window. So that's where the gain is. It's maximizing your maximum performance rather than uh, actually making you go faster than, than you would have before. So it, it's hard to predict. There's some circuits that it won't give you any benefit whatsoever because it's normally the rear tyres that are the problem. Um, it will just be ones which are really stressing the front tyres, which would tend to be some of these high-load circuits, Barcelona, Silverstone, you know, all the ones where we had the, the funny tyres a couple of years ago where front tyres get really heavily loaded through the high downforce corners. They'll probably be the ones that will, will be important. So probably for maybe... Let's assume in every race goes ahead, they'll probably only use it maybe at half of the races um, uh, unless um, you know the tyres really start to be a problem for them this year. Could you theoretically use it the other way around, where if you're behind a safety car or in a, like a VSC, where you could add tow to help the tyres keep up to temperature? You, you could rejig the system, but the system will only work one way or the other. It'll either increase the amount of toe outwards or it'll de- uh, increase the amount of toe inwards. Um, so you would have to decide which geometry rack you would have before a race. So if uh, in the situation I've explained where you would have normal tyre temperature and then you would then employ DAS to reduce tyre temperature you could potentially have another steering rack set up where you have normal tyre temperature, but then DAS on the straights actually gives you more toe out to increase tyre temperature even further. Um, Somewhere like Monaco be, where it's yeah, I mean, easy that, on tyres yeah, and you're going to get a safety car. Yeah, I mean, it'd be a pretty bold step to actually create a system that would give you even more front tyre temperature. But... Again, maybe maybe they've got two geometries and they can fit the rack depending on the, the situation. Um, you know, we're all kind of guessing here because, <laughs> because <laughs> we've got nothing to kind of look back on. I mean, I can't think of a single situation where a race car has employed a variable tow system. Um, not even during the active era did anyone think about doing that. There are some sort of road car systems and some sort of development systems and um uh you know pro driver company i do a bit of work for um actually produce something like that for just kind of you know a testing sort of function so we've got nothing to kind of look back on in this respect and it's not a variable that anyone's really put into race strategies before so at the moment the only version we've seen is where it decreases the amount of toes so the wheels are pointed more straight than pointed outwards so we would have to assume that's the system that they intend to run but as i say you're right they could have um a, 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 a tire warming version which is the does the opposite it's nice that Formula One can still surprise, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Um, you know, and you, you, you have to wonder how some of these meetings came about. It's like, oh, God, if only we could do this to get more tyre temperature. And someone says, why don't we try this? It's like, that's mad. Uh, but some, sometimes though, though, it's those ideas that, um, you know, get, get progressed. And if, you know, if you look at the regulations for steering, it is literally about three or four points, which is pretty much that you can only steer two wheels with the steering wheel. I mean, I think that's the kind of the gist of it, really. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it's one of those areas that's never really been developed and no one's thought to have rules to kind of circumvent it, a bit like the F-duct a few years ago and, you know, other other these kind of the big stories that we've had over the years on, on technology as well. 
yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be interesting to see what um, see what they do with it and where they use it. And I think we're gonna see see it quite a bit just because of the way that Mercedes were playing it down after everyone discovered what it was. Mm. Yes, and uh, I think for me the the interesting thing would be if anyone think feels it's worth punting in a little um, little protest. It's the first time it's used. One one of the kind of the vaguer things that it. it the, um, kind of conflicted with so um, yeah we'll see I mean again I, I, I think whether it runs or whether it does gets banned I don't think it's it, overall in the grand scheme of things it's going to be a silver bullet that's going to decide I mean it's not a double diffuser kind of advantage it's um, something that Mercedes have clearly been struggling with thought to find a solution and it may make them a bit more consistent throughout the season um, in different weathers and different circuits, but that's about as far as it goes. Let's face it, Ferrari would be the one that probably put the compl- that would put the complaint in, and they're probably going to keep quiet for a while. I'd imagine. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah. Ren- Renault like a bit, good bit of a complaint, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I don't think you always un- hear exactly who does um, protest, and certainly when I've had the, the sort of the inside story on protest, it's not the team that are actually doing the protesting or being blamed in the media for protesting that actually do it. Normally, it's either people moaning about Ferrari or people moaning that Ferrari are protesting. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't take too much heed of any any media uh, stories around who did would protest if it does come about. You never know. We might get the um, second ever 17 press release about a protest in the history of F1. <laughs> <laughs> The first one, of course, coming last week after um, every non-Ferrari-powered team said, hang on a minute, why aren't you giving us the full story here? <laughs> mm. Yeah, that was, that, I mean, this is this is a story that's been kind of rumbling for a couple of years. Obviously, we had the double battery argument um, a couple of seasons ago, I think it was now, um, that never really kind of got openly resolved or clarified exactly what was going on or what's changed in order to keep an eye on it. Now we have... Um, everyone moaning that Ferrari's engine has been too good this year when for years we've been moaning that or not moaning that the Mercedes has been too good whereas you know Mercedes um, were lauded for having a great engine Ferrari well it must be illegal there must be something wrong with this engine Um, so the story basically is that since 2014 all of the F1 engines have got a limited fuel flow so at any point you can't have more than an instantaneous rate of fuel going into out of the fuel tank and into the engine. And there's been lots of ruses over the years to try and store fuel outside of the fuel tank around the engine and bits and pieces like that. But that's all been kind of strapped down. Um, obviously, all the oil burning story, which, you know, again, you could argue about its legality. And Mercedes were the people that introduced that um, into what they call party mode um, into F1 a couple of years ago. Um so where it's got to now is that the people on the other manufacturer engine teams think, well, the only way Ferrari could be having such a powerful engine is somehow that they can beat the fuel flow meter. Now, the fuel flow meter sits inside the fuel tank, and it's a purely electronic system. There's no moving parts in it, and it measures the fuel going through by ultrasonic means, which is not something I care to try to explain how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Not simply because I'm not on video and I can't wave my hands around, but frankly because I don't know how it works. But um, the argument is that somehow Ferrari are interfering with the signal from this sensor that goes back into the FIA uh, data recorder, which is built into the car. Now, 
that could well be the case. Um, and we don't know if other teams have already been doing that. But obviously, the FIA have spent a lot of time last year looking at Ferrari. And we had this really strange um, series of uh, press releases from the FIA saying, well, effectively, we can't prove that they have cheated, but we aren't happy that what they've got is exactly what we want within the regulations. So we've agreed with Ferrari to make some changes and leave it at that. Uh, when this goes on all of the time in Formula One, um, with people putting ideas forward to the FIA, the FIA saying, yes, that's legal, or no, we're not happy, or teams pointing out designs to, uh, uh, to the FIA on other people's cars and the FIA having a quiet word. And often, most technical controversies get solved this way. For some reason, the FIA's way that they dealt with the, the press releases inflamed all these other teams, and they've now put this kind of big, oh, we're not happy about this kind of thing. Um so, well, yeah, where does that go now? Um, the FA clearly can't prove Ferrari have cheated. They can't prove that their uh, system is in contravention of the regulations. So they can't take Ferrari to court over anything. They can't, you know, ha- have uh, a big argument with them because it would just run on in court and it would just cost everyone a huge amount of money and not really ever get to um, a clear resolution, I would imagine. Um, so where does that leave all the other teams? Um, obviously, Red Bull are claiming that they're going to sue FIA for the uh, loss of their uh, prize money because they would have come second if Ferrari hadn't been doing whatever they were doing. Um, so uh, on the political side, I've got no idea where that's going to go. However, the FIA have already acted upon what Ferrari or other teams, let's be quite clear, um, you know, because it's very easy to point the finger straight at Ferrari, but... The FIA did investigate other people's fuel systems through the year as well. So there's no, you know, there could be fingers pointed in other directions as well. But what they've done is they've actually fitted a second fuel flow meter. So this first one will be now described as the team's flow meter. And the teams can take the data off of that to make sure that they're not flowing too much fuel. But now there's a second, very similar um, fuel flow meter provided by one of the homologated suppliers, Centronics. Um, But this now has got a completely encrypted uh, data recording capacity, and that goes straight to the FIA data recorder. So the teams can't hack into what that fuel flow meter is saying. So even if they're cheating the first one, they've got no idea what the FIA meter is measuring. So that effectively means that you've got a completely clean signal for the FIA to measure. So... The first theory on that one is that it should stop teams then doing whatever they may have been doing in cheating the meter, which is great. It means everyone's using the same level of fuel flow and we're back to a level playing field, which is great. But then, I mean, if we remember when that meter came in, I think Mark Webber lost um, his his, his finish at the first Grand Prix of 2014 because of a fuel flow meter. Uh, error. Was it so not Ricardo the, at that point? Was it uh, No, I think that was Weber back then, 2014. It would have been sort of multi-21 era, wasn't it? Yeah. Was that I, right? I, th- was... I think Ricardo has lost a podium at, uh, in Australia as well, maybe. Oh, I, right, okay. I it was. Was, oh, it, was it his first race in Red Bull? It was. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares Some about Some Australian. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're not really important in this situation. <laughs> but... Um, it does worry is if the team are reading their meter and they feel that by reading that data that they've got the right fuel flow level, 
if that for some reason doesn't correlate to what the FIA are getting from their meter, where does the argument go then? Mm-hmm. Now I've got no reason to think that that will happen because obviously this has all been you know sort of rig tested and there's lots of transparency about how this is all set up with the teams. But you know I suppose there is arguably there was always some potential for something to go wrong somewhere. But I think at the, at the, again the key thing there is that the FIA have acted upon this. They've found a system and they've actually found a way which could actually be employed in other areas of the car to double check legality uh, where, you know, they're using the same sensors as the teams are using for their own telemetry to do the policing of the car. Um, so, again, a bit this is an, a, another good step for the FA in actually policing the teams on the electronics. So uh, we'll, we'll just see how this shakes out of the first few races. Yeah, this, this of course is totally coincidental with uh, Ferrari's um, testing speed traps being well down on where they <laughs> thought they would be and where, you know, in comparison to where they were even last year. Um, yes, uh, I mean, Ferrari's pace, I think, is going to be one of the puzzling questions over the start of the, the, this season, to be honest, you know, kind of away from the controversies. Um, you know, you can see that Mercedes are fast. I mean, that comes as no surprise to anybody. Red Bull have had that momentum they built up through last year, so they're looking really strong. Ferrari are taking a step back, and Ferrari as a team, and from the people that I've kind of heard whispers from within the team, they're not happy internally with the performance of their car. Now, some of that you can point at the engine. Um, some of that is that they had to change their philosophy last year, which was this low drag low downforce uh, setup, which kind of ruined their tyre management and really the straight line speed advantage wasn't enough to beat Mercedes over lap the majority of the time everywhere. So they've lost straight line speed from a concept change in the car, but equally, the, the whispers we're getting out of kind of Maranello is that this car isn't performing and wasn't hitting its targets in the way that they wanted to. So Ferrari can actually slip away from being that kind of, you know, uh, third equal top team to maybe dropping slightly behind um, Mercedes and Red Bull and into the clutches of, you know, dare dare say it, you know, McLaren or even (laughs) Racing Point. Have you uh, been? You have to add. Um, So, yeah, that's going to be a really interesting dynamic in the early part of the season. Now, no doubt Ferrari will claw it back and no doubt there'll be some race weekends where that Ferrari package because of it's set up the way it works on the tyres one weekend and the weather will work and they'll get victories. But at the moment, it's not looking really very optimistic in the early part of the season for Ferrari, not least if you then start to think about all of the problems that they will have with their personnel back home um, and the travelling personnel uh, going out to races from, from Italy at the moment. Even the supply chain of getting updates out to the team uh, exactly. might be a struggle. You know, it, it's, you know... Obviously, Ferrari being based in that area as, you know, in the same area as Magneti Morelli, as uh, Delara with um, Haas, you know, there's a real, but much like you have in, in the UK, it's a real area of motorsport excellence. And if that is interrupted and the ability to get people to places and uh, goods and equipment to places, it could, you know, it could play out quite badly for the, uh, you know, the Italian-based teams, obviously Toro also being included in that as well. So, you know, it's... Yeah, it, things are kind of just piling on top of uh, Ferrari at the moment. And, um, you know, I think it's important for F1 that they are competitive. Um, so it's always a bit of a worry when you see lots of these sort of warning signs that they're not going to be kind of there or thereabouts this year. I can't help but think that Ferrari, you know, sorry, Italy could be like in the middle of a zombie apocalypse 
but the government would still somehow find a way for Ferrari to race. Yeah. <laughs> there is there there is always um, that that aspect, and uh, you know, I, I, I hate to be sort of you know, stereotypical about how how things run in different countries, but um, yeah. There's 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 rules and there's rules and they can be applied in slightly different ways depending on where the influence is. So, you know, but for, yeah, it, it, fingers crossed for Ferrari that they can, you know, keep that pressure uh, on, on Mercedes and uh, against Red Bull because I think that will make for a fascinating season, if only to see how you know the pressure of trying to get success at Ferrari plays out between the two drivers um, because you know I think that potentially is the um, you know, potentially a, a triple bill of uh, drive to survive uh, season three. <laughs> so much to focus on between the two Ferrari drivers this year that they'll just have to, you know, maybe run an entire season about it. That'll obviously run at the same time as the um, new spin off Gunter Steiner series. <laughs> Which has to happen. We need that. <laughs> just do a chat show at the end of the Grand Prix, doesn't he? Just bring people in, shout. <laughs> If there was ever a team principal we needed to get on this podcast, it's him. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he's, he has turned into a legend, hasn't he? Uh, absolutely. Um, the funny thing is, is you know, I've I, I've dealt with guns going all the way back almost to the Jaguar years, and um, it, I, I can't actually remember him chatting to him where he's actually sworn up. <laughs> <laughs> I can listen to my transcripts, but he never came across to me as someone so sweary. But my God, does he swear in the show? But you know, I think that's you know, I think that's one of the things that maybe you know, often F one gets lost in the uh, the PR correctness, um, and uh, you know, that is kind of drive to five for all of its faults and for all of the faults of the um, the you know the, the other broadcasters covering the Grand Prix each weekend. The drive to survive has kind of brought that out, which is which I think is great. He does have a Roman Grosjean and a um, Kevin Magnussen now comment. since Jaguar. Maybe it's Grosjean that's brought it out of. <laughs> it has, and it's like you've still got the same drivers again. It's amazing. <laughs> I could, after watching that episode on Haas, I'm still none the wiser at how at least one of them isn't there. Uh, but equally, the drivers want to stay there as well. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, to, uh, to be fair, I think I think Haas might have more choice than they do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, it has it has showed how a very difficult year played out for them. Uh, you know, they had it coming uh, at them from all directions last year. So, uh, you know, I don't think testing has really proved conclusively quite where Haas are placed this year. I don't think um, in the gravel. <laughs> In the gravel, I mean, they don't feel like they've jumped up to the sharp end. But then again, you know, it's not about the sheer pace of the car. It was about how they uh, cope with the tyres and how they cope with problems with their aero correlation. So, you know, again, that's one of those stories that I think is going to play out over the entire year to see where Haas come back to. But, you know, again, that midfield pack is looking even tighter this year and even closer to the top three. So, it, you know, it's going to be really cutthroat there this year. I mean, we did um, we did a poll on our Twitter account a couple of weeks ago about is this going to be Hass's last season in F1, and um, the results actually came out fifty fifty. So nobody's entirely convinced, and I personally can't see all the issues that they had last season with the car improving, because well, I'm right in thinking that we're running the same spec tyres this year as we were in 2019. They are yes, and. Haas are still buying a car off the shelf. 
Well, um, in, in bits from us, from the, from a variety of different parts suppliers. Well, mainly from Ferrari. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if the Ferrari buy it from another supplier, then Haas in turn buy it. But effectively, they're buying the Ferrari non-listed parts to build up the rest of the car around the bits that they have to make to be a constructor. Um, so nothing has really changed in their um, approach to the sport this year. I think the regulation has changed on they have to design their own brake ducts this year. But um, to be honest, so the problems that they were having with tyre temperature, that is no bad thing that they would probably want to probably even started doing that last year. So, I mean, but last year, the problem with the tyres was one issue, um, but also they did have an aero correlation issue, which um, I've not really had a chance to discuss with the team directly, but certainly from kind of reading some non-technical interviews around it, it was basically that some airflow wasn't going the way it was as they updated the parts and they didn't pick up on that. So they actually had a car that was aero was screwing itself up around the lap in certain conditions and only adding to obviously the other woes that they had. So if they've got the aero bit sorted out, then potentially the tyre problem could improve for them um, and um, they can they can make progress. Um, if they haven't done that, then obviously this looks then things will look really bad for them this year. Um, and you know, in terms of that vote, I'd like to see Haas stay on, uh, in F1. Um, but equally, I could understand why Gene Haas has kind of given it a go, hasn't had the the budget to kind of build the team forwards in the way that they have, and going the listed part approach, which they've done, was only ever a way to get the team up to speed quickly, not a long-term solution, because you can't just, you know, buy another team's um, parts and then build your car around it, because you need to understand every aspect of your car if you're going to work up the grid. If you've got loads of bits that, you know, you kind of just get given and you have to then work out, because obviously Ferrari can't sit there and baby talk Haas through, because the regulations, not because Ferrari wouldn't want to, they can't baby talk Haas through, well, we've designed it like this to do this, so you're going to have to do this as well. It's kind of like, well, this is what these parts look like. Go away and build your own Lego kit out of it. So it's, you know, it, it is a, it was only ever a short-term thing. So if they want to step forwards and become a, a successful F1 team, they would need to become a proper constructor, making more and more of the car. And that just needs more and more money. And I don't know if that's what Gene Haas wants to uh, invest his money in going forwards when they're on you know, lots of other alternatives around the world for uh, getting exposure for your machine tools. They had a couple of sessions in testing as well where they had technical issues. They probably spent a bit more time in the garage than some of the others. How How is that going to affect them? Um, I mean, I think that's all part and parcel of, of sort of testing. You lose time. Uh, only six days this year really was kind of reducing it down to an absolute minimum. Um, yeah, I mean, it's difficult, but um, you adjust your program to make sure you get the priority stuff done um and um you know uh, it, until you get to a proper hot race in proper race conditions it's very hard you know barcelona is a great track to test that but it is notoriously difficult to actually get real judgments from how tires will behave in you know real hot temperatures so uh, i think they'll be happy actually just to get racing uh, and start to develop from there rather than worrying too much about losing a couple of days of testing or whatever the accumulated time was that they lost um, during the test 
Yeah, cause I think um, Kermag ended up with the least amount of laps on the Friday afternoon because he spent most most of the final session in the garage getting the getting the clutch mm. put back together. Mm. Yeah, um, and again, you know, we've some, I think lots of the other teams actually also had some you know mechanical issues based around the uh, the engines in particular. Mercedes unusually lost losing uh, losing time for both the factory car and I think the Williams wasn't it, um, which is quite unusual. So, um, you know, everyone is pushing really hard. So, yeah, you will get problems like this. But, um, you know, uh, with only six days of testing, in some respects, it's kind of like, well, you haven't lost that much <laughs> because there was so little to start with. You're just, you know, you're, you're always going to be time starved through testing. So, you know, let's just let's get out to some nice hot races and just get the car running. Um, well, you mentioned Williams. Is their improvement sort of a, a bit of a false dawn or do they appear to, to sort of to try join the rest of the teams now i wish i could answer that honestly because i <laughs> haven't got the answer um the signs um look good um that they are progressing um they are still towards the back i think it's fair to say um and i, but I think they could be battling at the back with other a couple of other teams rather than being you know the real outliers uh, particularly in qualifying I think in the race last year I think lots of people kind of fell backwards into their clutches um, because of issues rather than because of sheer car performance so I'm not sure if I've seen enough from Williams uh, publicly stating where they're at to kind of feel that they've made a huge jump forwards i think they have made progress they obviously had lots of issues last year and they appear to have gone through trying to tackle them but um you know they're coming from a lot a very long way back the car doesn't look massively different you know they haven't kind of found a couple of silver bullets in the design of the car that makes you think wow they're really kind of back on the story because to be honest if you'd have looked at last year's williams and painted it silver and called it Mercedes, most people would look some of the features on it and thought, wow, that's really cool. That's going to be a fast car. But, you know, it's it's in the detail um, and it's the ability of the team to execute uh, the problems and, again, drive to survive. I think we didn't delve deeply enough into what was actually going on at Williams at that stage or well, that, that, the same time this year as it was um, uh, last year uh, at pre-season. Um, I think it had a very light touch and it was um, a very Claire Williams-based um, uh, point of view for that. Uh, so yeah, I think Williams will do a bit better, but I think they're, they're I, I don't think they've really got everything resolved that they need to get resolved within that team. Um, so, you know, again, I, I, I fear for the future of the team as much as I, I, I fear for Haas. And um, you know, I think it'd be a huge, huge issue if, if Williams can't continue in Formula One. Um, I think Williams may well continue in some format. I think it could actually be absorbed by another entity or maybe go racing in another category going forwards. I don't know if Williams Formula One is necessarily the title that'll stay over the door going forwards. This is the third season now, isn't it? The beginning of the third season where uh, we've heard the same kind of spiel, especially from the top brass at Williams, where they, 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 they say, you know, last year was terrible. This year must be better. And, you know, yes. it's, it's all well and good saying that, but you've got to make the changes. But don't, don't forget, in the words of Paddy Lowe, making a Formula One car these days is complicated. Yes. <laughs> it is, especially if you can't make the parts. Um, <laughs> Quick enough, but uh, yeah, that's that's a completely other story. Um, yes, it's 
you know, um, it's it, it, it yeah, it, it, it it's a really tough time. And I think if you look at Williams, you know, we've seen this with so many top teams that they've had periods of massive success, and then you kind of get that decline with a few spikes in it. So um, yeah, obviously, 2014 was a bit of a spike for them. Um, uh, the, the year Maldonado won that race was that 2013? 2012. Spain, 2012. Yeah, yeah that long yeah. ago. Right. Um, yeah, there are a few spikes, but if you you know 2014, that they got they got lots right with a change in the and um you know it's 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 a long way to dig yourself out of that when you see you know where the the rest of the midfield have got to you know i know mclaren have been the team that have kind of done almost exactly that but um you don't get that that sense of williams fight back in the way that you've had perhaps with with uh, mclaren over the past few years well that's it mclaren made the changes didn't they they made personnel changes then they made operational changes uh, they made philosophy changes, and it worked for them. And they and, now, they're yeah, now further up the grid. I think they've been quite open and honest with themselves along the way about where they've been going wrong. And I think that is, you know, it's kind of recovering from anything like you know, like an addiction. You can't you can't get over it until you admit that there's a problem, and you you then start to tackle that. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of where Williams is, and uh, that that I think to me that is the thing that worries me most about them going forwards. Um, because everything they have done is right, but I still don't think that they've really kind of completely reversed their their um, direction. Do you think they'll look at what uh, Racing Point have done this year and think maybe we should have gone down that road? I think of all the teams, I think Williams would be the ones most resistant to doing that um, in an odd kind of way because Williams are Williams Grand Prix engineering. Mm-hmm. For them, then go ahead and take a listed parts approach would be the you know, entity. I mean, well, the Claire Williams quote from um, during testing, it would cost more to lay off the gearbox department than it would to buy in gearboxes. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's probably quite true. I mean, they've got, you know, that department in particular is a, is a big part of Williams, but is it is it is that investment in those people... Uh, and I'm not picking the gearbox. I mean, any department is that actually delivering lap time for that investment? I mean, that's really where Formula One management comes down to: is where do you spend your money to get your lap time? It's all very well and good and having some principles and you know a direction for the team, but at the end of the day, um, is you know uh, I think Dr. Harvey Postlethwaite, the old sort of Tyrrell boss, would say, you know, we're going to spend all our money on one area forget about the front uprights we don't want to make them any lighter this year because it's not really going to change the lap times let's focus our money on where you get lap time and um you know maybe they do need to change their approach but again it would be very hard for williams to do so when it's still you know frank and claire's name over the door yeah i think i think the problem is as an organization they're not modernized and they've still got the attitude that even though they're in a big modern factory they're still building cars in a shed yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that it's one way of putting it. It is, isn't it? It's you know, it's still Frank's old team. Um, you know, um, uh, based down at um, over in Oxford, and it's yeah. Again, you know, it, the changes that potentially could need to be made don't appear to be being made, um, and uh, it's, you know, it, it's it's worrying because 
you know, that you don't, you're not seeing these big names arriving at the door to make the big changes. You're not seeing people saying that you've made any sort of big changes in that respect. So, you know, uh, we just have to see where, where, where Williams get to. Fingers crossed that the car is working for them in the way they would want it to this year. Even if it's not very fast, if they understand it and it's working, then that is at least one step back on the road to, um, you know, getting in amongst the uh, the midfield. Yeah, I mean, at least it turned up on time this year, so yeah. that's, you know, that's that's one better than this time last year. Uh, yes, um, but you you are very much, looks look like they're starting with a car that was very much looked like the car from last year, uh, and that there are changes on it, and obviously it is a, as I would describe it, a, never an accurate term, but 100% brand new car, but, um, you know, it's still very closely based on the ideas that they had last year, um, just with, you know, the, the, the problems hopefully ironed out in it, so... Yeah, they they got they got testing. They've got six days. Um, let's let's see in Melbourne um, where they where they finish qualifying in uh, on a you know a even kind of fair day, and we can make some more judgments then. I think. Um, now the whole racing point thing, the pink Mercedes. How uh, much of that <laughs> is last year's Merc? <laughs> Right. Okay. So uh, the, percentage, I, I, the percentage has to start with a nine, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I think here we've got to. Uh, I, I was writing an article about this the other day, and I had this great idea of how define what copy means. So I looked at the Oxford Dictionary, and it's like, oh God, no, that's not. I can't use that then. Um, right. So the racing point looks like last year's. Mercedes okay yeah. so what that means is all the external surfaces have been very diligently copied from the ideas that Mercedes were running last year um, that's not to say that they've got CAD data from Mercedes or parts that they could measure or anything like that because obviously that's strictly against the regulations and yeah. racing point aren't idiots Mercedes certainly wouldn't be stupid enough to give away that sort of information because it would obviously threatened the their, their uh, position in the championship so racing point have came to a decision last year is that they developed the um 2019 car up to a point mid-season where they had all the key bits and pieces on it that everybody else had but they were still kind of middle of the midfield um good days bad days but they were kind of the middle of the whole of the whole um, grid really weren't they so they had to decide we've got all this new money coming in what do we do do we keep flogging the 2019 car or do we do something radical which is to try and do what mercedes are doing because at the end of the day the mercedes is very different to everybody else's race car it's a much longer wheelbase it has much less rake um and it's been really successful you have to say i think it's fair to say mercedes have been successful for the past six years i would say so And then you realise that Racing Point have run, obviously, not just the Mercedes power unit, but also the Mercedes gearbox. So for every year that they've been trying to run a slightly shorter, high-rate car, they've been lumbered with this big, long gearbox, which has got mounting points designed for a, a low-rate car, which is, makes it very difficult to then get all your suspension designed around it. So they made the quite wise choice, I think you'd have to say, that we've got the Merc rear end, let's design a car that looks like the Merc and we've got data for, well, obviously we've got photography of the 2019 car. We'll, we'll do, we'll do that. So that's what they've done. There's no copying, 
you know, literally copying from Mercedes. It's just been, look at the shapes they've got. We're now going to go and draw that ourselves, try and understand it ourselves, try and get the performance out of it and make a new car that way. When you then look under the skin, you can actually then see is that the racing point is still a racing point. So the internal front suspension, the way they lay out the cooling, all the other bits under the skin that you can't see uh, from the outside are all very much racing point for as far as I can see. So you've got a car that looks, has got a Mercedes looking wrapper, but it hasn't got the Mercedes suite inside. It's got the racing point uh, board suite inside rather than a, a German one. So a world yeah, is what, unoriginal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots, of, there's lots of great jokes about the, uh, the cut and pasting of the, uh, the design. So, and I think testing has proven that that has allowed them to make a jump in performance, but they may not have done if they had just developed their car. Um, but the problem then is this goes back to the kind of the Haas issue, the racing point, uh, the uh, listed parts issue, is that if they've copied someone else's work, do they really understand it? Now, they're not stupid, so I hope that they would have spent their work. Oh, you're still with me? Yep, 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 yep we're still here. I'm very quiet. I heard some noise in the background. <laughs> um, so just as Haas get a whole load of Ferrari stuff and don't necessarily understand it, at Racing Point have got a whole load of stuff that they've copied from Mercedes and they've tried to understand it, but in reality, when it hits the track at all these different race circuits, do they really, really understand it? So they could actually find themselves having a bit of a jump in performance, but then a bit of a slump as they then struggle to resolve the issues that they do have with the car, if there are any, and then work out how do they then develop that through the year? Because obviously they've got no reference from Mercedes, because obviously Mercedes have completely changed their car this year. So they can't net mid-season cop 2020 Merck. They've got to try and second guess what Merck did, what would have done if they'd have kept racing the 2019 car. So Racing Point have got a very difficult uh, sort of um, period ahead of them. If there's no problem, then bang, they could be racing up against uh, Harold and potentially kind of knocking up against some Ferraris and races. So they, you know, it really pay off for them. But, you know, you have to say the jury's out at this stage because there's so many potential risks involved with that approach. So why this year? You know, what, what, like you say with them having the gearbox stuff like that over the course of the, like, multiple years. I think, Why I think this the rationale year? Is, yeah, I mean, I think the rationale for them was, and I think Andy Green was quite honest about this, he says, well, obviously, we know that the Strolls have put a huge amount of investment into racing points since they took over about, what, a year and a half ago now, isn't it? Mid-season 2018, I seem to remember. Mm -hmm. um, so for the first time, racing point, and whatever you want to call their, their you know, them as, a, as an entity over the years, the Silverstone-based team, I think we call them. Um, for the first time ever, they've actually got the money to actually make a wholly new car over the winter. And they've got the resources, because before that, they were always a bit handicapped. Even last year's car was the 2018 monocoque that was revised to have different suspension and different side pods. So they've always been restricted by resources. Now they haven't. They're thinking, well, actually... Everyone else might be kind of just easing off the development for 2020 a little bit. So why don't we kind of, rather than do that, do the opposite, put our foot down, really develop a great car, reap the rewards early in 2020, hopefully in the championship, and then at some point, hopefully, we can then focus again on 2021, big reg changes, um, and hopefully won't lose too much momentum uh, for the season after this. 
Because it was, it was something that we've always said about Force mm-hmm. India, is they always get better later on in the season. And if they've not got a 100% new car by Monza or Spa, yeah, they've yeah. usually got rid of all of last year's yeah. parts by that point. Yeah. Which makes sense. They always, seem to be, they always seem to be slightly out of phase with everybody else. Some years they start off really well because they had the money over the winter to develop a car. And then some years the money runs out mid-season and they can't develop the car mid-season. Sometimes they have the money mid-season and they can develop the car. So it, it never seems to follow um, a sort of a 12-monthly cycle. It seems to be almost like an 18-monthly cycle for them that puts them out of step with everyone else. I think now... And again, another one of the things people have said about that team over the years is, God, if only they were given a decent amount of money, imagine the job they could do, because they do so well with very little money. Um, and, you know, maybe the strolls are having the effect there that they um, didn't have at Williams, um, and it's all kind of working out for them all, which, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, I think we'll all be really happy with. Um, and... You know, racing point can go go racing with the resources that they've always deserved. I mean, it, from a sort of fans' perspective, it's good to see more teams actually there in the mix. Mm. What I'd, what I'd like is a grid where every car looks different because the teams oh. have been able to <laughs> do their oh. own thing and can be competitive as well. Yeah, I can I, mean, I can dream. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, this this year everyone is going to really. Um, converge on exactly the same ideas because by the end of the year apart from some of the slight variations we've seen with the nose design which to be honest isn't the most exciting thing to look at um is probably the only difference you'll be able to tell in the cars um you know whether they've got you know nostrils or a hole or a slim nose or a wide nose that's about the only way you'll be able to tell them apart everywhere else now is very much cookie cutter even the front wings by and large are kind of converging on a mix of that um inboard loaded outboard loaded story that kind of brewed up last year it's only looked like sauber that have gone or sorry alfa romeo hmm. have gone really extreme uh, in uh, another direction this year and um you know they haven't even got a, a lot to lose they might as well just go and kind of again you know go their own direction um yeah so the only car that does look different funnily enough is the racing point because it looks like last year's mercedes which doesn't look like any of this year's cars so, yeah. <laughs> um, despite despite cutting and pasting, they've actually ended up with a car that looks like no one else's, um, which seems ironic, really. Yeah, there's nothing remarkable on any of the other cars, really, is there? If you look at the Renault, it looks a little bit different from last year. McLaren, same again. Obviously, the livery's a little bit different, but it doesn't look an awful lot different. Uh, the Alpha Tori, the old Toro Rosso team, um, Again, new livery, but does, doesn't look that much different. If anything, that's the car that does look a little more, a little different because I've noticed that the back end appears to be a lot slimmer even than the the other cars that are on the on the grid. But I don't know if that's an optical illusion just because it's white. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard. I mean, with the everyone's kind of following the very much the same side pod shape now, uh, so it's very hard to kind of work out who is slimmer. Uh, and who isn't um and even if they are it's like kind of got to the stage now it's like so what everyone's got really slim i think you're kind of split hairs by the end of it um so it's very hard to kind of pick the cars apart in terms of development you go for a wide nose or a narrow nose or what have you it's um everyone's really using very much the same sort of solutions it's just different ways of doing it and they don't look that different um and it, it ends up being in the detail 
which will split the, um, the teams. And I think in some respects, it almost potentially could come down to tyre management and how your car works in different weathers, different circuits, uh, which we, we have seen a lot with in the midfield for the past few years. But I think they'll just be that little bit closer to the top three, if we can still call it that, um, over the course of the year. I don't think we've got to the stage where someone else could potentially come out and win a race outside of um, the top three uh, on a normal weekend. I think if we have some unnormal weekends, like a bit like we had in sort of Germany last year and um, what was the other cracker, Brazil, um, I think you could see um, certainly the podium being mixed up a lot this year. And I think then it could potentially, if all the kind of the, the cards fall for the right team, that you could get a midfielder getting a victory in this year at an odd race. Um, which I think would be great. And then, you know, it, it could literally be any of them, depending on the situation. I mean, it could be, you know, Haas or Williams, um, as much as it's more likely to be potentially. Um, McLaren, I think, would probably be the favourite at the front of the field at the moment. But, um, you know, uh, it would be good if we could get a few more um, non-top three team podiums, because I think that just makes the whole end of the race that's a bit slightly more interesting than the sort of standard mix of people just um, getting up there every weekend yeah. makes, makes our prediction league more interesting as well yeah <laughs> I think things yeah, are I mean, less... yeah. Uh, yeah I mean I think if you if you were if you were a betting person or um, in, in a league you to put in uh, the odd podium for um, uh, a, a non-top three t- top three driver you probably could get some payouts on that um, and you, yeah, you could do okay I imagine yeah, what odds, Lee? What odds did you get on uh, a Perez World Championship? A thousand to one, I think it was. <laughs> I, I think, I think you're. Yeah, that that would that, that wouldn't probably be the ideal bet. I'll be honest with you. I've um, concocted a dream, or, or at least a scenario. Oh God! The, the scenario is that um, Ferrari's off the pace. Red Bull haven't quite got it, and Honda still have problems. Mercedes end end up with Bottas. That's really coming at Hamilton. So they fall out with each other and Perez becomes the Kimi Raikkonen of this year and sneaks a championship <laughs> while Mercedes were losing it. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I'll, I'll watch the um, Drive to Survive episode. <laughs> um, I've got to be honest, yeah. that sounds like a great season. Like, that sounds really entertaining to watch. <laughs> So I think basically what we're saying is that everyone else would be fighting in the pit lane and Perez just kind of drives out when no one's looking. I mean, that's yeah. the, yeah. Lance, that's Stroll. the Lance, Lance Stroll. Lance Stroll is still 12th. <laughs> yeah. Except at Monza. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Baku. Places with no corners, he'll still beat, he'll still beat Perez. But um, yeah, um, it, I mean, it, it could happen. Anything could happen in F1. But um, I, I do fear that the, um, the, 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 the championship will go to the, the obvious contenders this year. I think the interest will be in who chases them and when. Um, I think that really is going to be the kind of story this year, um, rather than uh, anyone probably than a, a silver Mercedes winning with, um, I was about to say, a... A, a purple crash helmet, but I don't know if and now the regulation has changed that I imagine Hamilton's going to be, you know, most drivers are going to change their crash helmet on virtually every race um, to uh, play about with the, uh, the deliveries that they put on them. Make it even harder to spot who the driver is. Yeah. <laughs> if, if only they had their own unique numbers on the car. <laughs> yeah, this book from ahead and from the side. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, do you uh, not think Red Bull will be a challenge from like Australia? 
I, I think Red Bull will be a challenge throughout the year. Um, yeah, there is absolutely no question of it. They will be there. Um, I just don't think Red Bull can put in a season-long performance that would be more consistent than Mercedes. Mm. Uh, and that's no that's no outright criticism of, of Red Bull. I think that's just, you know, I think where Mercedes are at in terms of where they got through last year, despite the pressures, they let some race wins go. But at the end of the year, you know, they still absolutely blitz the championship. Um, so I think it will be a lot closer this year. I don't think, you know, we're going to be getting to um, <laughs> all, all things occurring as they are scheduled to. Um, I don't think we'll be getting to, you know, two-thirds of the way through the championship and it would be over. Uh, I think it would become a bit more to the wire between, um, you know, th- those sort of top drivers. But, again, I, I, I would find it hard to see someone being more consistent than Mercedes throughout the year. But I think we're going to have some absolutely ding-dong races uh, and some on-track racing this year. I mean, it's really shaping up to be really exciting. So hopefully, you know, you ignore the, uh, you know, the, the, the final constructors and drivers' positions and what, just enjoy the race in between each, in between each race. I think, that, I think that's the plan. One mm. thing that I did want to um, bring up, um, going back to testing, was there were stories about um, the Renault having more of last year's car in than um, new parts. I don't know if you came across that one, because it seems no. to be a bit, a bit no. much of a hybrid. Um, I mean, that wouldn't be unusual for any team, to be honest. I mean, you could, you as much as they all come out and say, oh, it's 100% new car, there's not a single part that gets carried over. That, you know, that simply is never true, um, unless someone has literally rebuilt the car and gone complete to like imperial nuts and bolts rather than metric ones. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've not seen too many detailed photographs of uh, the Renault. Um, what I've seen of it so far, it looks different enough in details to show, feel that they have done, you know, stuff to the car. Um, I think you know, if you could cover bits of it over, you could then maybe struggle to think whether it's this year's car or last year's car. But I think that's the same for everybody. Um, so again, Renault remains this, this team that is just a bit of an enigma in how aggressive it is in tackling Formula One. And uh, you heard a bit of talk about that sort of during the sort of the launch phase, didn't you? Um, and if you can call their launch a launch, which was even that was rather odd this year as well, wasn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, I've, I, I've got. I would hate to try and predict where Renault are going to end up this year. Um, last year they were looking good, but they obviously had a, a really bad year with their with their aero setup and with their tire management. Um, and yeah, maybe they've cured that over the winter. They've learned their lesson from last year, or maybe they haven't. Uh, maybe there'd be a different problem. It's it's really hard to predict. Again, the only thing I would say is at the moment we're not seeing that um, big step from Renault that would make them the, the clear leaders of um, the midfield. Um, I think I think that that moment that the gut feel isn't that that's McLaren that are taking that kind of position. Um, but again, you'd have to see how that shapes up through the year. But you know they're another one of those teams that you know perennially just seem to kind of like yeah. You know, this year we've got it sorted and we're ready for it and then it's like by mid-season it's like oh no we're fine we'll leave it this year we'll come back next year <laughs> um, uh, both on the chassis and the engine you know I mean they, they don't develop the engine through the year in the way that um, all the other three engine manufacturers do to be frank so um, yeah we'll just have to sit and watch hopefully 
they've got their formulas right over the winter and they can come out fighting in Melbourne. But, uh, well, we will literally have to wait and see how that quality and that first race session goes. It's strange. They, they don't even seem to hold themselves like a works team anymore. You know, it's, it's really odd. Yeah, I think you've. I think that's actually you've hit the nail on the head there. They don't feel like a factory team. They still very much feel like Endstone, don't they? It's like you know we've got a bit of money together this year. We're going to go racing, and um, it doesn't feel like the might of Renault are saying we're going to go out there and kind of pulverise the opposition. Um, and you know, I think again, you you then have to wonder is what is Renault's commitment to to F one. And, uh, I mean, I think you could probably go up and down the grid and point the accusation at maybe a handful of teams now is, you know, what is their commitment to F1 long term? Because I think Mercedes, um, you know, I predicted for many years will step out as a factory team um, at some point in the not too distant future, much to Mercedes Twitter accounts um, defiance. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I will always speculate and I don't see anything that um, as as given me any feeling that Mercedes are going to stay in the, in the sport as a manufacturer entry uh, longer term. It's a strange uh, thing, though, for Renault. You know, if if Renault haven't got like the backing that they're putting into the team, yet they then go and spend, what, $40 million on Daniel Ricciardo. Yeah, again, it's you, 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 you scratch your head sometimes and look at these things and think, how did that happen? Um, you know, where you know, where where you know, where where do you spend your money for the lap time? And then, no offence to Daniel, who is one of the best drivers out there. I don't know if Renault were in that position at that stage to need a star driver. I think there was an opportunity there, and they grabbed it. But it's been a, a very expensive step for them. Um, and uh, if anything, they, they you just feel that they're maybe a, a step further away from it this year than they were at the start of last year in terms of optimism and kind of, you know, steel to um, get stuck into the championship. Do you think uh, Do you think Formula One can be that petty that it was more of a case of getting one over on Red Bull and taking their other driver at that point, you know, where Red Bull and Renault were falling out with each other? Just when the engine announcement had happened. Yeah. 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 I think you could you could you could be cynical and say that they did it that way. I would seriously doubt anyone would do it for those reasons. I think they saw an opportunity to get a top class driver um, and felt that was the direction that they needed to go. I don't think it was done despite Renault. I'm sure at the end of it there was probably a little oh yeah we did that ha 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 <laughs> um, and a pat on the back. But I don't I don't think that I mean I think it was you know on paper it did look like. Um, a good move if you were feeling very optimistic for your team. So yeah, I, I think it was it was opportunist rather than vindictive. You know, worked out really well for Arrows when they got Damon Hill the number one on that. Oh, hang on, <laughs> got a podium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then again, you, know, you, 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 you say that, but um, you know, he, 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 as you know, he almost got that victory in for yeah. them for that year. Would another driver have been in that position? And the same when, when you know when Jordan kind of nabbed him as well. Um, having a good driver sometimes can bring little changes about in results that you, you've always sought. But I think Renault's problems obviously run far deeper than driving talent last year. Um, and there was just simply nothing that, that Daniel could do, really, um, given the, the, the engine 
uh, reliability and uh, the chassis performance and the tyre performance. I think if, if anything that highlights Renault's problems more, doesn't it? Because when you've got a guy which is a proven race winner and you know it's could possibly be a world champion at some point and he's, yeah. he's where he was all last year, it just doesn't look yeah. good for anybody. No, it doesn't. Um, and I don't think it's going to be much better for them this year because obviously uh, Ocon's so highly rated um, that they've got nowhere to hide with um, with their package, have they really, with, with those drivers on board. They've really got to deliver. Um, and they've really only got this year to do it, I would imagine, given the uh, the contracts that are in place. I'm not quite sure exactly where they are, but I think they're quite short, aren't they? From the, from the comfort, comfort of my armchair, I've never understood why Ocon is so highly rated because all I remember him doing when he was in Force India was having little clattery moments with Perez, taking out Max Verstappen when Max Verstappen <laughs> should have won a race and constantly arguing with people. I, I can't. I don't understand how a year out of motorsport will help that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, find, I, I, you know, as you probably know, my background's technical. I find it very yeah. hard to rate the drivers. Um, I, I he's, he's a very nice guy. I've met him. Um, and yeah, he put some good performances against against Perez. Um, you know, they're two very different types of driver. So I think you know people do see him as a slightly more exciting, get stuck in driver compared with Perez, who obviously has his way of approaching races, which has been massively successful for him in uh, Racing Point Force India over the years. But um, yeah, I mean, like you, I, I I don't feel that he is. The next big thing, I think he, if in the right place at the right time, he could win championships and races, certainly. But, um, but yeah, again, he is a really good, well-known quantity. Um, and he's, you know, he's sat in that Renault now. So, you know, for Renault, it's kind of put up or um, shut up, isn't it, really? Mm. You know, but I think the reason that everyone uh, looks at Renault with sort of such cynicism is the number of times they've pulled out as a constructor, as an engine supplier, and you just think, oh, they're going to do it again. It's uh, another Renault exit. Three years, they'll be back uh-huh. in one form or another. Yep. And last year, they got a little bit embarrassed when their engine in a customer team was outperforming their own cars. And yep. I think this this is why, like you say, Lee, it's not, they're not like a factory team, mm-hmm. just because yeah. they should be the best performing car with a Renault engine in it. I'm now forever going to call this Rexit as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know whether being French, it's more of Ro Revoir. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, uh, it, it, you just don't get that feeling that they are going to suddenly start winning races just on performance alone. Um, they've, you know, they've changed their, their technical structure slightly, losing Nick Chester going and Nick, uh, sorry, Pat Fry. Um, yeah, you know, and again, that's not. I don't think that's necessarily the a silver bullet for them to to, to make big changes. Um, and you know, in some respects, I wonder. You know, should should the the Endstone team be a be an independent? You know, let's let's just have um, let let them have at it as a as an independent with a Renault engine, find some money from somewhere and, and go that way. I think they would, in some respects, they potentially could be a better team like they were when they were kind of that sort of odd lotus entry for a few years where um you know it really allowed them to be that little agile team that they were have always been as benetton and whatever else over the years and, and go racing that way i don't know if um renault enstone f1 is necessarily 
the right way for them to go racing. Until they enter a third car with Nelson Piquet Jr. driving it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that's a story, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we've sort of touched on McLaren a little bit. Um, have you seen anything on this year's car that sort of keeps up the uh, keeps up the progression from last year? Yeah, I mean, McLaren are one of the teams like a lot of the side of the midfield, which have kind of just done a little bit more to their car, and not nothing nothing big and weird like on the Mercedes, on the Red Bull sort of big ideas, um, but just made a little step. Um, with all the little details, there's nothing on there that particularly I kind of sort of picked out. Um, but that's no bad thing, you know. They they really had the kind of the pace at the back end of last year. Um, if the Renault engine can push them along a bit better and a bit more reliability as well, then you know, I think they're on for um, you know their best season in in a long time. And you know, with the potential of Ferrari um, sort of wobbling around a bit, I think there is you know there's a real potential for them to um, really get kind of stuck in at the beginning of the season. Whether they can hold out through the whole season against Ferrari, maybe not. It depends how much kind of Maranello kind of implodes, really, because it, it can go either way with them, can't it? Um, but yeah, so I mean, everything there is looking really good. Um, great driver lineup, nice mix of um, sort of skills between the two of them. Um, and uh, I think we saw sort of science really come out as you know that sort of professional sticky driver that you know we did see sort of glimpses on of sort of through his, his red bull years so um yeah i think think things that things are looking pretty good there they've really got a good setup and they've you know for much of my criticism over the years i think they have kind of reached the stage now where they are again uh, a really serious f1 team I mean that's good. that's good to say because yeah we've we've talked at length about their years in the in the doldrums but how much mm. of that was Honda's fault how much of that was Ron Dennis's fault. No, yeah, I mean I, I think there's been a lot of fault in lots of places over those years, um, and I think a lot of it comes down to you know the kind of the core at McLaren. You can you can blame Honda, but you know, I think a lot of that was mismanagement um, by McLaren, and I think it's took them a while to to see that and to work those things through. Um, they obviously they'll be will be going back to Mercedes power, won't they, in the future? So yeah. that is like a oh wow, um, this this could get interesting. So uh, I mean I think the uh, the Renault is um, a slight um, fall in their in their heel, so to speak. Um, so again, when you look at how things could be panning out in the future, things are looking quite good for for, for McLaren. So. Um, you know, applause to them and a pat on the back that they have done the job, which, you know, so many of us doubted that they they could get to um, just, what, a couple of years ago. At the, t- uh, the time when McLaren got the Mercedes engines for next year, uh, I thought about what you were saying just, well, not what you are saying just before, but I thought about what that same thing about Mercedes leaving Formula One. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, what a good position it puts Mercedes in because they could pull out of Formula One as a, as a constructor now and still have their McLaren Mercedes favoured team like they used to. Yeah, um, I I think though if that if that were to happen, I think that the um, we've got to start calling all the teams by their their, their factory uh, town now, haven't we? The Brackley team <laughs> um, could could find itself kind of um, continued. 
in a kind of a, a Braun-esque way, and we could potentially some. I would imagine something like Wolf F1. I'm going to say it's going to mm. it's going to be the second team on the grid to be called Wolf Racing. Yes. Um, uh, so that, I, I think that we would see a continuation of the Barclay operation in, under somebody else's title as a Mercedes engined independent team um and i I still have a a really strong level of success so that's that's how i would see that would pan out on that side um and so much the better for mclaren if they you know if they're back on top of their game then they could it could you could see mclaren customer teams sorry mercedes customer teams fighting out for the championship you know uh, wolf versus mclaren again going back to um <laughs> worst I series on national geographic the, remember the wr1 um yeah so i i you know i think that as much as i think it could be um you know a lot of teams could be under threat i think the potential rebirth of the teams could, still gives us you know some some hope that we will see an exciting Formula One in the uh, in the years ahead. I always wondered whether Ferrari would think back to when they uh, started the Schumacher era, and how, how did we do that? Well, we bought the best bits of Benetton, and whether they'd, yeah. they'd make a smash and grab for, say, Lewis Hamilton and key members of Mercedes in one swoop. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that that's a possibility. Um, you know, that's how lots of teams. You know, make that big step ahead. Obviously, the trouble with Ferrari is, is they've done that so many times in the past, and so often they've actually done that wrong. If you actually consider that Mercedes, sorry, uh, yeah, Mercedes under the past few years have been um, with James Allison. Ferrari had him; they had him. Mm. He was their technical, and they squandered that opportunity and mismanaged the whole situation and the, all the political background. At, um, uh, Ferrari at the time undermined what um, James was doing there, so you know, it's not always uh, the silver bullet just to buy in some some big names. And uh, equally, I I I would wonder how much Lewis wants to carry on in F1. Um, I know he's obviously quite um, emotional about potentially racing for Ferrari, but equally he's he's got lots of other interests and other motivations. So you know it could happen. Um, I think it's just as likely that it's unlikely to. Um, uh, they could hire Newey. I can't see that really happening. Yeah, hasn't he um, got some sort of golden handcuff deal though with Red Bull, where he can't work for another team? Uh, I'm not sure about that. Um, I, I, I think Ferrari, I think Ferrari would happily buy him out if they could. Yeah. <laughs> motive again, you have to question. Newey's got the motivation to do that. Um, I think there's a, quite a few key people that Ferrari would do really well to employ from other teams um, that would work really well. But it only works if that is the big direction that the whole of the Maranello uh, sort of politico needs wants to go in. Uh, and I think at the moment, um, I think we've got to be a bit worried about the direction that Ferrari is going and is it all going to go a bit pear-shaped this year because... Um, you can see that um, uh, Binotto is under a lot of pressure, um, and I think you know he's shouldered some of the blame for issues last year, um, rightly or wrongly. Uh, I'm not quite sure, but um, yeah, F- Ferrari potentially could be looking for uh, some senior staff quite quite rapidly, um, judging from past experience. Well, haven't they, haven't they already said that um, if this year's car isn't quick out of the blocks? then they're going to abandon it early. 
So I think they said that, and again, the the, the kind of the, the the rumble and the whisper from inside Maranello is this car, this car is not going to be at the level they want it to be, um, either on chassis or engine. Um, so yeah, um, but you know, a disorganised team scrapping this this year's car to go and look at next year's car isn't necessarily a recipe for success in 2021. So, you know, again, it's a case of, you know, that the management need to be all going the right direction. And um, I'm not sure if Ferrari, after a bad start to the year, are going to be, <laughs> going to be in a position to comfortably say, oh, like, you know, we're going to forget about this. We don't mind coming behind McLaren in the championship and fourth, um, but we're going to be great next year. Um, I don't I don't think they could take that that position. Uh, and I think heads will roll very rapidly. I'm going to say the Ferrari way of doing things is if if we're not doing well, even though we're not good enough to do well, we'll still fire people. Mm. Well, you, you just get the feeling, don't you, with Ferrari, since you had uh, Jean Todd and Ross Braun in the house, no one else has been trusted with the keys since those two. There's always There's always been like an overshadowing voice waiting to sack someone. Yeah, which is, you know, which is, which is, um, you know, if you look through history, sadly, the Ferrari way. Um, and it's only when they get a really steady pair of hands does do things get, get sorted at the team. And, um, you know, that, that there was that period where they did have, you know, harmony with the, the, the Todd Braun Burn Schumacher era. Um, but even at the end of that, that then started to kind of peel apart, didn't it? And there were, you know, accusations and they wanted to get rid of people before it actually all, everyone actually started to leave. So, yeah, it's um, it's a, it's an odd um, facet for Ferrari's character, isn't it? Pol- politics over engineering any day for them. <laughs> Yes, yeah, that seems to be the gist of it. Um, and you, know, you you sit there and think, who could come in and really nail that team manager and that technical director position where you would bring direction and harmony to the team, and while keeping the uh, you know the uh, the big boss happy? And we've we've not had many uh, phases of that. Um, over the past few years, sadly. Yeah, many have tried, not many have succeeded. <laughs> um, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was, uh, th- this one's confused me a great deal, um, Alpha Tori, obviously part of the Red Bull group, saying they've now mm-hmm. got closer ties with Red Bull technology. How can, how can they be closer than they were before? Uh, it's, it's weird. Um, if, you, if, if you had two F1 teams, the greatest designer in current Formula One and you wanted to them both to be really successful, you would run them almost as a single entity, wouldn't you? That's that's the way I would see how you would run it. But if you look at Toro Rosso throughout its history, uh, which obviously is adding up to quite a few years now, I mean, I still think of them as a newish team, but obviously, what, they were up to their 16th year must be now? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, and throughout most of that, um, only tapering off in the last sort of year or so, they have been almost wholly independent of Red Bull in design terms. And you scratch your head and you used to look at them and go, why are they designing their own gearbox? Red Bull have got a perfectly good gearbox they could just buy. And then when you see the listed parts approach that you know, is increasingly becoming popular, um, that's why wasn't that a direction taken much earlier? And it's only now that they're reaching that. So last year they took um, the, the gearbox 
the whole gear and rear suspension for the first time this year. They're getting the front suspension to match it from last year's car, if I remember correctly. Um, so they've taken a slightly bigger step towards not a full Haas version of it, but certainly uh, being a bit more pragmatic in, in where they spend their money. And I think that's a good thing. Um, you could then argue, well, that means that they will all, always only ever be slower than the Red Bull team. But, well, oh, come on, let's be honest. They, they, they weren't a threat to Red Bull for these past 15, 16 years. Um, simply taking year-old equipment will just bring them closer, but not, not to the level where they would overtake them on a regular basis. So it seems entirely right and pragmatic and long overdue that this this approach has been taken obviously it's slightly sad for the the engineering group at um Fienza, uh, at uh, uh alpha to remember that at the moment um <laughs> doesn't roll off the tongue just yet it's not even a, a, an easy thing to kind of remember or pronounce but um we, we've rechristened yeah, them Alpha-tora. team t-shirt yeah that seems that's probably slightly better um so i mean obviously that was a factor in james key deciding to sort of depart the team uh that he didn't have that sort of full control and full trust of the rebel technology group but um yeah i mean i think that's the right direction and um again this year where would they end up because there was points last year they were they looked really good and other points when they looked kind of nowhere really um and it's i think it has been their inconsistency has been the most problem uh, troubling thing of of the Toro Rosso Fienza team, as we have, we have we could call it, because Fienza, repeated, yeah. the Fienza team, the repeated uh, team name changes. Um, so I think this year, all I would really want from them is them just to be like a, a solid position in the championship and it races throughout. So they're always maybe qualifying either just in or just out of the top ten, and that they're going to finish a nice solid sixth or something, rather than one weekend thinking. They're going to drop right down, and then other weekends thinking, "Wow, they're on it." And obviously, you know, Brazil um, last year, where it was like, "Oh my God!" It, it outdragged Hamilton on the straight uh, <laughs> on the last lap. Um, so that yeah, there is potential in that team, but con- the consistency strikes me as a thing that's always kind of let them down. It's going to be a tough one to call. Um, I think that just leaves Alfa Romeo that we've not really talked about. And yes. they were a little bit anonymous during testing, really. Um, yeah, I mean, again, they had, but, but much like their performance through last year, there were moments where they had flashes of speed and moments when there wasn't. Um, so you sort of scratch your head and think, you know, where, where does that leave them? And they are, they are one of the factory group teams, but they have lost their designer, who's gone, uh, Simone Arresta, who's gone back to Ferrari. Um, that will be... Uh, an issue for them uh, maybe not initially but maybe as the year progresses um the car you know seems as good as it was last year and again it's just that kind of um inconsistency now we know that if Raikkonen's in in the right mood with the right car and the right tires uh that on race day he can pull out what you know if he was a rookie what you would describe as miracles but you kind of accept it when Kimi kind of suddenly pulls in a sixth position in a race um, so yeah, I mean, I think their race performance could actually outshine, particularly in Kimi's hands, out, outshine the you know, the car's um, general performance. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that you would have to accept that there are stronger midfield teams this year, uh, and things don't look um, particularly rosy for um, for uh, uh, Alfa Romeo. But 
the Hidwill you know, team. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah. So I mean, I, again, I think you know, their strength is 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 in the potential pace and the potential performance of Kimi, really. But uh, you would have to say that uh, a position above seventh or would be unlikely um, in the championship. But there'll be weekends where they, you know, they'll just get it all together and just really nail a great race result. Do you think that um, Alfa Romeo, as they are now, are gradually coming into more of a position as the Ferrari junior team and take, taking over from Haas? Because obviously with um, Fiat Chrysler Group putting the money into title sponsorship of it and the Sauber name sort of gradually being phased out, are they now becoming sort of the new what we thought Haas were going to be with getting the... I won't say yeah. the Ferrari off-casts, but... I think certainly commercially it's looking that way. Um, uh, technically, no, because, you know, they still are um, very much an independent team, merely running the Ferrari um, engine and gearbox. So, you know, they still, you know, they, as far as I understand, they don't take anything from Ferrari apart from that. So if Haas were to pull out, there is the potential that they could be potentially coerced that direction. But... Um, you know the uh, the Hinville team, as we must call them now. Um, <laughs> um, you know, again, they're a bit like Williams. You know, they are staunchly independent. They, are, you know, there is that. You know, stuck out. Uh, I say stuck out. That's not a rather uh, impolite way of putting it. But you know, based out quite remotely from the rest of the F1 um, sort of centres in in Switzerland. That they, you know, we do our own thing. We and you know, you look at the car and you can see it is significantly different from most other cars on the grid in lots of details it's by no means a copy of anybody else's um i would find it might be quite a difficult pill for um for them to swallow but then again freddie Vesseur running the team is very pragmatic and if that's what brings the results and the lap times then i think he would you know potentially um lose some of the skills to um, take Ferrari parts, uh, so the Maranello team, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, from the Maranello team, which have been, in fairness, have been very consistent with their team name over the years. Yes, um, in, in contrast to um, just everybody else, I think actually. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so yeah, I mean, it will, it's always nice to see that you know one of those kind of minnows have a bit of a result, but um, you know, I don't think you could be too confident for them this year. Um, but um, finally, I think the, the team we've spoken least about actually is Red Bull, which potentially is the um, is the is the <laughs> is the the fly in the ointment or the yeah the potential um, excitement for the year, isn't it? Yeah, I think it, it's it's going to be because I mean they were, they were showing they were showing pace and reliability in longer stretches during testing. Um, the car looks fast when it goes out in a hot lap, and I did see quite a bit of sandbagging from Max Verstappen to absolute. Mm two absolutely blistering sectors and then just taking his foot off the gas for sector three because yeah. he knew he'd already got it. But obviously the way that Barcelona's laid out, first two sectors, long long turns, long straights, and then the third, a little bit more technical, or as Lee described it, the twisty turny bit, mm -hmm. the twists and turns. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you're right. I think they, they've, Honda have come on leaps and bounds and I think Honda will continue to do so. And I think that could be the big threat um, for Mercedes this year, how well that goes 
Um, and then with a, with a reliable, powerful engine, Red Bull can then unleash the chassis, which they've been obviously having to kind of ease back in terms of how much downforce they can afford to run um, because of the lack of power. Um, so you know, they are looking, they are looking really threatening. Of course, we say this, we said this about lots of teams over the past that have potentially threatened uh, Mercedes through winter testing and as a result of previous year's success and then bang, you know, you hit Melbourne and Merck just, you know, stick it in another gear and like pull away. I think that might be more, slightly more difficult for uh, Merck this year. But um, I think the thing that will start to shake out will be not the outright pace of the car. So I think qualifying in some respects will become slightly less important this year because potentially it's going to be how you manage the tyres and your race strategy that actually brings you the victory um, rather than who can literally pull out the fastest ever lap on a single lap. And it will come down to racecraft. And that shakes out really interesting. And, you know, I think last year, for all of the criticism of it being a kind of a bit of a murk whitewash in the championship, we saw probably more on-track action last year than I can remember for many years. Um, you know, and the drivers being quite prepared to really go wheel to wheel and beyond. Um, and yeah, that, 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 that really makes it for a massively exciting race. And I think, you know, Red Bull clearly have got a bit of a, you know, a star in Max Verstappen. Um, uh, and I think the challenge for them in championship, certainly for the constructors will be how much Albon can pick himself up by the, uh, the bootlaces and, um, tag on to the back of the uh, group of you know what potentially five other very good drivers in the top three uh, top three teams has there been anything on the red bull that's caught your eye because i remember reading um uh, before the testing started that so some were saying that red bull were kind of told just to throw everything at the car and take as much take risks with it to try and find the performance yeah i mean the red bull actually is one of those kind of quietly adventurous cars and uh, i think a lot of people have looked at it and kind of misunderstood it slightly so um they they've worked very hard on that car this year you you can see it and you can see where they've decided not to make compromises like with the front suspension um in terms of its part of its geometry but then in other areas you can see where they're really pushing um some areas so you've got the slim nose which i think everyone picked up on but then you have this this whole what they call it um, um a double bulkhead set up at the front which has been um variously described in various in, in my opinion quite inaccurate ways in various places and it's actually quite quite interesting in what they've done to the car and um the more you kind of work out what the rationale is the more you actually realize that i think they've got maybe one of the more in, way over what das potentially could do they've actually got one of the quite interesting layouts of the um of the, the season on their car so what they've actually done is move the front suspension on the, uh, the front uh, axle line effectively forwards on the car and this has done two things this first of all it gives you uh, a slight change in wheelbase um, which i think they've counteracted at the back slightly but what this does is gives you more space for barge boards which um, obviously are the kind of the key differentiator between all of the aero parts on the cars um, but what it also does is allow them to play with the front suspension in the way that no one else has been able to so when we were talking about DAS earlier, I was talking about Ackerman geometry and how you get the uh, wheels to steer through a corner at slightly different rates from your inside wheel to your outside wheel. 
And with the way that they're now changing front ride height with the, the push rod set up on these cars, as we saw at Monaco last year, where I think it was Bottas on the onboard, you saw him turn the steering wheel and the whole front of the car just dropped down to the floor. Um, I think Rebel have got a bit of a trick there because they've moved the steering rack actually behind the front axle line. And again, it's very difficult to do without waving my hands in the air. But um, <laughs> we're going to have to get you on video one of these shows. Oh well, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to do a sort of a, 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 a kind of a David Bellamy waving my hands in the air explanation of things. But what this potentially allows Red Bull to do, apart from giving them an aero advantage with the um, uh, barge boards, is if they can play about with the geometry of the steering, they can really gain a lot of downforce through the corners by lowering the front of the car. Um, and with their already really high rake at the back of the car, this potentially could give them a huge advantage uh, in downforce uh, on how they can play with the balance of the car at different tracks. And no one else has really kind of picked up on this fact. Um, in fact, a lot of people actually thought they'd move the suspension forwards because of the way it gets laid out at the front. It's, what they've had to do is very structural. No one can copy this through a season, whereas someone potentially could redesign their steering rack and run DAS on a conventional car no one without building a completely new monocoque can f- copy what Red Bull have done around the front of this car this year. So they've been quite quite clever about it, and it's really kind of gone under the radar. Um, you know, hopefully it will get talked about a lot more um, as I get around to drawing it properly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, people, uh, people will actually start to understand what's going on there. So, yeah, you know, that Red Bull is good. Um, uh, it's, it's like it's using some new ideas, keeping the best of the old ideas. And obviously Honda just keep ploughing on as they do. Um, and uh, I mean, a lot of people were actually placing the Honda engine, you know, on a par with the Mercedes by the back end of last year, which is com- com- comes a long way from 2015 when, you know, we go we're just literally going through engines every weekend and every session. So, you know, I, I think any success this year for them is deserved. Um, and potentially, you know, potentially there is a championship there for them. I, I, I think that that is a bit of a stretch for them but you know it's a complete possibility that would that would be interesting to see i think verstappen's going to be the driver who will take it to hamilton more than any other yeah i agree i think if you were to to kind of create a a season average uh, podium it would probably be something along the lines of hamilton verstappen and somebody else we had some Vettel, Leclerc, um, Albon, uh, Bottas, um, all fighting. So I, mean, I think it will be a, a, a Hamilton Verstappen Championship this year. Yeah, uh, which you know will be exciting on track. I think it will push the championship towards the end of the season, and you know it could be someone other than Hamilton that wins. It could be Verstappen that wins it this year. I think the constructors. You know, I think Mercedes have to be really unlucky not to clinch it this year because I can see no way that Red Bull can have the two-car consistency or Ferrari can have the pace to beat them in that. And I, if we ended up with a, a Verstappen drivers and uh, a Mercedes constructors, I think we would be quite happy with that, wouldn't we? I th- I, we haven't really seen Verstappen. Listening. Sorry, I, I know you won't be, but... Sorry, we haven't really seen Verstappen sort of with the pressure of a car which is capable of doing something you know he's always, he's always been the guy that could get the the one good result when where red bull turned up and somewhere it's kind of it's kind of it feels easy to do that because you're always mm. just going to get loaded with the praise aren't you with without the pressure yeah. i mean i think i think he can probably and um, i think 
certainly the, the the way the team will spin spin it to the media and certainly spin it to, to Max himself is that oh no, you can't beat Mercedes in the current formula, so we might as well throw everything at it. And you know, if you crash, you crash, fine, and have that level of approach. And I think up to a point this year, I think that can actually work for Verstappen's mentality. But I think there will come a point when he will then have to put the mature head on, which yeah, we've seen growing mm-hmm. over these years. Um, maybe slower than sometimes we'd like it to have gone. But um, He's still 12, you know, isn't I, he? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's when it will come down to those last couple of races where he has to get those results in um, when maybe they're not quite going his way. I think that's when we'll actually see whether he has got that you know, mature world, you know, world world champion mentality underneath him I think potentially the first championship may come from that throwaway mentality the second one um, particularly with the Red Bull advantage um, could be the more difficult one for him where he has to be the you know have that world champion mentality and think I've got to shape my whole season to get to this end goal I think this year it will be go for it and if we don't make it we're always going to get second or third so that's great so yeah, I mean, I hopefully, you know, the um, the uh, helmet Marco Christian Horn kind of mind games that can can work good or bad for a driver will will work positively for Max this year and kind of free him up to just drive uh, until it comes down to that kind of crunch point. Hopefully, yeah, I mean that's one thing that's impressed me with Lewis Hamilton over the last couple of years was just since since he seems to have set his sights on beating Schumacher's record. He's mentally he's been relentless. You know, he, if if he has a bad race or if he's if he was beaten by his teammate, where when it was Rosberg he'd seem rattled or bothered about it. He just seems to take it now because he knows like another win is probably only two weeks away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, Hamilton with Mercedes, and I think it's very important that you put the two together. Um, you know, particularly with Peter Bonington as race engineer and with the whole strategy set up in in Mercedes and the way they engineered the car, is that they've worked out how to get victories when they can. Um, and I think last year was, you know, the great example. A few years ago, you would have said that maybe Mercedes weren't the greatest strategic team out there because they had a car. Strategic opportunities. Oh, you still there? Yeah, yeah. I thought we'd lost him for a second there. <laughs> I worries for a second. I thought we were gone. Um, so yeah, so I think they, you know, in a very similar way that you know you see Perez and Force India Racing Point have found their way of racing. I think Hamilton, with his you know potentially blistering consistent pace, and also his great tire management, which I think is one of his big un, unsung kind of skills, um, they've really found a way of actually managing this. Um, and you know, last year, you know, it was absolutely testament to that. So uh, again, I think they may take a similar approach this year, where it's like, you know, some weekends, it's not worth having a battle with Max. We're quite happy to slip in behind him. Um, but again, there will always come that crunch point when, you know, you can't afford to do that in the championship or in a situation. So, you know, I think we'll have a few a few times where people will tactically kind of back away. And a few times where they will just, you know, lock horns, and I think that's going to be makes for a fantastic season. Well, it all kicks off this weekend in Australia. Fingers crossed. While touching wood, <laughs> um, I, I, I still think it will go ahead because 
or something will happen in Australia this weekend because there's too too many teams and too too many personnel and too many parts there not to yeah they're already not there. to run something. Yeah. So because Australia isn't one of those circuits you can just rock up to three days before the race because you've got to get acclimatised to the time difference for starters. Mm-hmm. So as it's the start of a new season, that means the predictions are running again. Oh no, I'd forgotten about this. Yes, <laughs> and I'm sorry to say, Craig. We did this to you last year, because uh, we always have a guest predictor, and uh, this week it's going to be you. Okay, was it for the race? For the uh, race, or for, the race for the uh, for the top race. three. Top three. Okay. Well, I'll um, I'll stand by my uh, season season average concept. So it'll be Hamilton from Verstappen, and I think it will be Bottas following him up this weekend. Uh, very boring prediction, but um, I think if if I was Putting money on a safe bet. That's exactly where we put it this weekend. Right. Who fancies going next? Verstappen, Hamilton, Carlos Sainz. Wow. Gee. I'm just, I'm just watching Paul trying to type Lee's three-letter name correctly. <laughs> 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 it's not easy typing with this splint on. Yeah, but how did you get the seven in there? <laughs> it's the second E that's the tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, spelt with the silent seven. <laughs> Gonna type one handed, it'll be a lot easier. <laughs> right. Uh I will go. Uh I will go for Bottas. Yeah. Hamilton. Yeah. Verstappen. Okay. Chris. And I'm so boring. I'm just gonna go Hamilton, Bottas, Verstappen. So no love for Ferrari today then. Not in Australia. Yeah, just don't think they've got it, got it at the minute, but I am... I think they're still going to be in the airport, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> I am going for Bottas, Verstappen, Hamilton. Right, oh. I, will get, I will get those on the website. If um, any of the listeners want to do their own predictions, we've got the Prediction League running. Uh, just go to threelegsportwheels.com, go to the game section, and it's the 2020 predictions, and you get to predict top three... Fastest lap, pole position, and number of DNFs this oh, okay. season. New for 2020. New for 2020. And, of course, uh, one race out of the year, you can double your points. Just just to make it a bit more exciting and see if we can uh, see if we can take it down to the wire. Um, Should we do like football where if you have a DNF at your home race, it counts as two? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not proud one race. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, the, the world secret held behind closed doors not televised. <laughs> yeah, we've got we've got that to look forward to in a couple of weeks' time. Um as always, I will be live blogging the race on Sunday. Chris will be with me and be. Sean as well. I'll I'll be there. And if we can if if <laughs> I'll be there. Yeah. I don't know how evolved I'll be, but I'll be there. Yeah, you'll be there. It's in our house. You yeah. Probably will have to be there. <laughs> And we'll see if we can coax Dan out of retirement at some point of the year. Yes. Well, not retirement, but wedding planning. Sabbatical. That's his cover story. Retirement. Let's <laughs> stick with retirement. Probably not got time for a total shunt this week, have we? Cause, no. Uh, it's getting on a bit. It's, um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Craig. No, pleasure as always. Great fun. Thank you very much, everyone. Yeah, it's always great to have you on. Uh, just a quick reminder, Formula Lee is running until next Monday. This race is a racing point in the dry in Melbourne. And uh, get your times in in the usual ways. You can uh, find them all on the website. And uh, massive thanks, as always, to all our uh, Patreon supporters. 
Absolutely, thank yeah. you very much. You can find out what that is by going to patreon.com slash three legs four wheels. I am sinking. You are, no, <laughs> you are sinking. You are this is why we need Patreons, because clearly we need a new chair. Yeah, this, this chair is sinking. <laughs> Chris is now about a foot shorter than he was at the start of the podcast. I have been on that chair before, and I feel it's very judgmental. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I feel I do feel like I've been judged. We need less biscuits, fewer biscuits as a podcast. And uh, if you want to get in touch, we are at Three Legs Four Wheels on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And between us, all the rest of us are. I'm at a total shunt at Flood Twenty One at Sean Kelper at Pablo One Hundred and Craig. Your Twitter handle is at Scarbstech. There you go. Right, we will uh, we'll be back next w- next week, and hopefully we will have a race to talk about. Let's hope review. so. Fing- <laughs> fingers crossed. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.